Ephesians, the peaceful warrior. And my big idea is to build up the church to stay on mission. They're looking at me. Is everything, everything good? Oh, we're fine. Yeah. I see it. <laughs> um, so we say build up the church, stay on mission. The church is people. So as you, as you think about church, you want to build up people and stay on mission in that way. So as you work through that, and there's an outline on the back of your bullets to help you follow along. That, guys, that's like the second half of the presentation. That's not like the first slide. <laughs> so they'll work on that. Um, but um, as you look at uh, Acts 19 that was read today, and um, trying to build up the church, build up uh, people. I want to take a minute, since the book of Ephesians is about the body of Christ, to think about us and our bodies. And there's kind of three simple ways, parts of a human being, there you go, to look at it. Um, in this introduction, as you look at us and our bodies, is this idea of spirit, which is like my God orientation or eternal things or the unseen realm. The body, um, which is how I interact with this world, the five senses, and myself, my psyche, my soul. And of course, the break in our being is we're cut off from God. And that creates a tendency in us to say it in the most technical way, Paul says in Romans 1, to, ex to turn from the creator to created things to try to fill our deepest needs. So we have a, um, an interesting orientation to our body and sensations and um, how we identify with our body. And our body's a core part of who we are. It's part of what it's meant to be human. Um, but I wanna talk about that for a minute um, to make sure that we learn by grace to orient ourselves back to spiritual things. That doesn't mean the body's bad, spirit's good. That's not how God thinks. There's evil spirits, and he created a physical body, and God himself took on a human body, and the body's his temple. So we're not talking about good or bad. We're talking about orienting yourself to more foundational. All right. But um, according to one study that I saw, the, the ultimate thing about our body that we we're really addicted to and even kind of weirds us out is our sexuality. Okay. Another big thing is fitness in our relationship with food and how emotional that is for us. Um, but listen to some of this information. One in three Americans, if they could instantly reach your fitness goal, if you say, this is the body that I would like to have. Okay. And all the ways that that affects our self-concept, how we value ourselves, how we value other people. One in three Americans would give up sex for a year to instantly reach their fitness goals according to new research. <laughs> That's not all they'd be willing to do. A survey of 2,000 Americans found 25% of respondents are so desperate, on one level, so desperate to reach their fitness goals, to have the body they think they should have, whatever that means to them, that they would be willing to spend a week in prison to achieve it immediately. 
That study, conducted by one poll on behalf of Freeletics, so that's the source, examined respondents' attitudes on fitness, well-being, and, here's your orientation, what motivates you. Sadly, the study reveals an often fatal flaw in people. They may, they may have a good idea of what they want, but they lack the emotional fortitude to persevere in the daily grind of what it takes to get there. The study said, despite the things I just shared with you, that 68%, so a good number of these are willing to give up sex for a year, go to prison for a week. That's what they say they'd be willing to do, but 68% of them feel so overwhelmed by maintaining a fitness routine that they would rather avoid starting one altogether. Doesn't that summarize the human problem? Right there. And what is true about our, us and our physical bodies is also true about us in the body, the church. What would you give up to have an ideal body? What about the church as our body? And let's get past identifying simply with the physical, as important as that is, and really talking about, you realize that everything God did with us with our body is a picture of what he's trying to get us to see spiritually about connecting with him and being one body and being a fit body. Paul was willing to go to prison to have a more fit body. Paul was willing to give up sex forever to have a more fit body. Would you go without sex to keep this body healthy? Which means keep yourself healthy too. Would you spend a week in jail to keep this body healthy? See, Paul told Timothy, who was pastoring the church of Ephesus at the time, Timothy, I'm trying to teach you all this stuff so that you, as the pastor of the church, Timothy, would know how you ought to behave in the household of God which is the church. See, the people, the assembly. And that is the pillar and buttress of truth. That is the hope for humanity. Not getting your candidate elected. Not having whatever policy you want implemented in the government. The church. That's the pillar and the buttress of truth. That is the hope for humanity. Great indeed, we confess, Paul said to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And now Ephesians comes and says, and you are part of his body, if you know Jesus. What would you do to have a more ideal body? And probably two-thirds of us that have a decent picture of what that would look like aren't willing to grind it out to get there. We're not even willing to do it for our physical body. How much more for something that really matters? Because let's, let's be real here. Jesus said, faithful in little, faithful in much. If you can't be faithful with your body, do you think you're going to be faithful to help the body become more ideal? 
Which one's bigger? Think about that as, we, as an introduction to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because we're not going to get much into Ephesians today. Um, but, and it's acting up. Help me out, guys. <laughs> get this back on. Next, next slide. All right. They can handle it. Maybe. <laughs> on the back of your bulletin, you'll see a thing. Learn. Dot, 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 right? So... We can learn from the Ephesians origin story in Acts chapter 19, of which part was read today, verses 1 through 20, okay, for our scripture reading. So remember that scripture reading and the kinds of things that happened. There you go. The human soul has a greater need of the ideal, the spiritual, than the physical. That's from Victor Hugo. So now our introduction, learn from the origin story. Thank you, guys. We only notice them when things act up, but... They do a lot of work to pull this off every Sunday. So a little golf clap, right? For, for All right. So learn from the origin story. Um, and remember the things that were read, okay, that Paul read. Um, and as I summarize the story, because I'm going to take a little bit to summarize it here, be thinking, as you hear me talk, about some lessons and life applications you might learn from it. Because when I finish summarizing it, I'd like to hear from you. Okay, so I'm prompting you. All right, so be thinking about this. In verses 1 through 7 of Acts 19, Paul shows up in Ephesus. He does what he always does. He goes to the synagogue. He starts teaching and sharing. Um, but he runs into, this one's different. He runs into this group of disciples. Um, and they seem to be Christian believers. And he starts talking to them and then talking about the Spirit. You know, all the stuff that Paul tends to say about the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And they're like... What spirit? <laughs> What's the spirit? And then Paul's like, wait, uh, who? You're baptized? Who, whose baptism was it? And he said, John the Baptist. So they were in Judea region when John was preaching, but before Jesus shows up. And they heard that. And they're like, I want to prepare myself for the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. The kingdom is coming. He's going to show up soon. And they heard that and they believed that. And then they went back to their area of Ephesus for whatever reason, and they missed all the other events. But the big lesson there is, as Paul coaches them through that and brings them into a full understanding that, well, that guy that John talked about has showed up, and they, get, they take Christian baptism. And as soon as they believe and get baptized, they get the Spirit right then. Acts is a transitional thing. And if you have more questions about that transition and these people who got the Holy Spirit in kind of this different way, that's a faith facts kind of thing. My big point is, these people loved the light they had. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you love the light, you will come into the light. So they'd come into all the light they had, and when they got more light, what did they do? They came into it. But other people in the synagogue, originally it's going well, and they were like, nope, we like the light we have not the so-called light you're bringing. And that's the stopping point right there. Because if you will not hear what God is saying to you now, you cannot move forward. So we have to love the light we have if we're going to learn from the origin story. And that's verses 1 through 7. Um, and the Jews in the synagogue, they had the right lineage. They had the good traditions. 
They had all that history, and that won't save you. You have to adapt to what God is doing today. It won't save you related to the eternity in the gospel. It won't save you as far as keeping in step with what God's doing today. You have to adapt. You have to adapt to what God is doing. They refused. They became stubborn and refused to change. So Paul doesn't fight it. In verses, the second half of verse 9 and verse 10, he gets this lecture hall of tyrannous, imagining having a professor who is literally named the tyrant. Though that's like every professor. <laughs> tyrant, that's actually what it's tyrant. That's where we get our word tyrant. But I guess tyrannous was sympathetic to the faith or whatever because he lets Paul use the lecture hall for two years. This is, one of the, this is probably the first case outside of the temple courts and just meeting in people's homes where the church gets a building. Okay, and they don't own it, but they have access to it and they're using it. And he's using, Paul's using it every day. And Tyrannus is sponsoring that. Um, but it's different because the lecture hall of Tyrannus in that culture, that's like a philosopher's academy. More like what we would think of as a school. Different than a synagogue. Similarities, but different. And we kind of still have a lot of that model to this day of how we train people for ministry. But Paul's adapting. He's taking advantage of what's available and what the Spirit's doing, and he's using it. And that goes on for two years. And, 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 and crazy stuff is happening, and miracle, God's using Paul to do miracles, and it's spreading through the whole province of Asia. And then you get that story where you have these Jewish exorcists. And they're seeing handkerchiefs that Paul touched put on demonized people, and the demons are fleeing. And they're, so they're listening from afar. Remember, they're not interested in conversion, but they are interested in marketing their services. And the world has always had exorcists. And exorcists are usually pretty fraudulent, but occasionally you run into a real thing. Um, and it's, you know, it's weird. And it, kinda, it, can, it can throw you for a loop, but there are people who specialize in that. And if you can take someone who has a demonization thing going on and all that spook phenomenon and stuff that happens, and you can provide a service to that person and their loved ones that helps them, do you think that's marketable? Yeah, that's marketable. Okay. So they want to increase their effectiveness. They're not interested in being disciples of Jesus, but they think they have the formula. And they're messing with stuff that they should not have messed with. So they go in, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul serves, we cast you out. And the demon's response, well, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I have knowledge of. That's where we get our word epistemology, if you're more philosophically oriented. Like the, the demons didn't actually know Paul, but they had heard of him. Paul had rattled hell's cages enough that these evil spirits over in this section of Satan's kingdom, however that works, like we've heard of that guy. And we know Jesus. Of course they know Jesus. He's the Holy One. Um, we, have, you know, we have some personal knowledge of Jesus, and we've heard of Paul, but who do you think you are? This is my territory. You're going to get beat down, and he beats them down and says, I'm fleeing from the house naked. But see, evil spirits mess up. Because did that really advance Satan's kingdom? No. It backfired. 
Now, I don't want to be one of the sons of Sceva who gets beaten up and sent from the house running naked. But the demons overreacted and it led to a revival. And all these people are like, whoa, what is going on with this Jesus? And they, they have all this occultic material and all these associations and their tarot cards and their horoscope readings and their mediums and all this stuff. And they take all that stuff and they just, they burn it. And they repent and the church explodes. So it's not a coincidence that Paul talks to the Ephesians about spiritual warfare. That's not coming out of the blue when he writes this letter and, and the war in the heavenly realms, because that's how they were birthed. That isn't what gets Paul in trouble. What gets in trouble is when he hits him in the pocketbook. Because all these people stop purchasing their pagan shrines and things like that. And then you're upsetting the people who have the money. And you're disrupting the economy. And you see in Ephesus three big things. You see the spiritual realm, religion, belief systems, worldviews. You see the money and that power structure. And then you see the government get pulled into it where the town clerk in Ephesus starts trying to deal with this riot. And town clerk doesn't sound important. It was a very important Roman position. And the town clerk, actually, the government steps up. And actually, out of those three, you know, you got Paul doing the right thing spiritually, but the government steps up and, and, and quells it and keeps peace. And you should always look at that, because that shows up in the book of Revelation. You get three big things that Satan's trying to infiltrate to gain power. And it's control the money, control the government, control your belief system. Okay. And when you see that all getting coalesced around uh, earthly power, that's Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Okay. So, but those three things are always going on. And be careful as a church that you don't get so hung up in politics and money because that's not going the right way. We need to manage those things well. But you already see in Ephesus that Satan had a real stronghold there, a lot of spiritual power, and the government stepped up. And of course, the church stepped up because Paul and his disciples are the church. So just be aware of that, those three things. And there's a lot going on in our society that's trying to like coalesce all of those things into one unified system. Then you're like, okay, so then who has power over that? Who controls that? That's not good. Because the only guy who can actually handle that is Jesus. So after he shows up, we'll trust him with that. <laughs> Before then, watch out. So there's your introduction. And learn, we need to learn from that Ephesian story. What are your thoughts? What can we learn from the Ephesian church's origin story? I won't belabor it, but Pat. Uh, go listen to the tape later. <laughs> Money, governmental power, spiritual belief system. Debbie. Jesus, we're always 
growing in belief. Yeah. And we have to understand everybody's at a different stage of belief, and, and God is all, you know, who is this that, that, that has control of the wind and the waves? Who is, you know, they're always developing in belief, and I think that's like huge for us to know that they've got this life, or I've got this stage, my belief, God's always developing, and I think, um, to, to grow more knowledge of him. Sure. So I think that's, to me, that's good to, to know that everybody's, everybody's different. Not, not everybody's where I am, and I'm not where everybody else is, so just, yeah, that old disciples of John the Baptist talk about not fitting your orthodox belief system. <laughs> and, it's, and it threw Paul for a loop. He's like, well, wait a minute. What, who? Number one, it's like, how did you guys even get here <laughs> if you didn't come through the established way? God's always doing stuff. And then Paul met them where they were. And, and then other people who, in theory, had more light weren't willing to keep adapting and growing and changing. So that one's huge. Dave. Yes. Which might imply in the text that these are people who have believed in the Lord. Yes. And and so I think that should 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 give us to consider the things that we have in our possession. No, that's a great point. These these were people that on some level were already followers of Jesus. And maybe some of them converted through that thing. But do you think that you don't have stuff, attachments in your life, things that are valuable to you? that are actually holding you back from really following Jesus? And you think the devil won't use those attachments? And maybe it's blatantly occultic, like here, but these were disciples, and they said, well, that has tremendous value to me. I'm attached to that, but let it go. It's holding, and then, of course, in this case, it was blatantly occultic. But hey, a lot of you follow your horoscopes, and a lot of you flirt around with tarot cards, and these kinds of things, and it's growing, and there's just article after article, if you know where to lurk, where people are like, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church is desperate for exorcists. And maybe a lot of them are sons of Sceva, and maybe a lot of them are legitimate. I'm, my point being, you think those spirits are going anywhere? If we step back from being radical disciples of Jesus, they step in to that void. They're still there. These, they don't grow old and die. <laughs> They're still there. We have to remember that as you think about people and their morals and lifestyle choices and things like that. The people are the people and you love people, but spiritual warfare is real. So, Pat, one more. So. Okay, that's actually a great bridge because Paul's trying to help the Ephesians be a fit body of Christ. Okay, and so as you try to learn from that, you have to stop overemphasizing leaders. Okay, and leadership is incredibly important. I'm not diminishing leadership. But when you look at the Ephesian church, and this won't take long, and then we'll close for today. The Ephesian church had Apollo some, but Paul... Timothy, Apollos, John, with the Virgin Mary, he brought her with him. Remember, he's caring for her. So imagine having the Virgin Mary leading your deaconesses. That'll be a spiritual church, right? No. Read Jesus to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. Their doctrine was sound because they had great teachers. I mean, 
Paul, Apollos, Timothy, John, Mary. That, okay, they had great leadership. So their doctrine was sound. But it isn't about the leadership. It's about the people. And you can't make people be loving, compassionate, people-oriented followers of Jesus. You have to do that. And Jesus rebukes them. So let's not get too hung up on overemphasizing leaders. Don't overemphasize the leader. Be one. <laughs> and love people. And love God. And commit and connect. So that's huge. But as you look at Ephesians, it really is get the big idea. That's all we're trying to do today, and this won't take long. But when you get the big idea which now we're back to where it started. <laughs> um, it's all about sitting, walking, and standing in that order. Okay. So sitting, just stop. You know, there's a lot about rest in the Bible, but if you can't, if, if you can't sit, if you literally like can't sit for two or three hours and just chill, and without starting to think about everything that needs to be done, you're missing something. You know, when, when we love the verse, be still and know that I'm God, what God's really saying to Israel at that point is, stop, just stop. Stop. Rest is a huge idea in the scriptures. And Paul talks about in sitting that Christ is seated in the heavenly realms far above all principalities and powers, and believers are seated with Christ. Okay? And no amount of good works, no amount of performance, no amount of hours of work that you do, none of that actually results in you ascending into heaven and bringing Christ down and making people somehow more spiritual. Okay? Doesn't mean you shouldn't do good works. We'll come to that. Okay? And no amount of good works or working, 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 working could ever have raised Christ from the dead. Paul says this in Ephesians. Either God gifted you with heaven and you can do nothing to increase your value to him or decrease your value to him, or you are trying to earn it. And this has profound implications of how we go day in and day out. That may seem like basic doctrine. It is not. Because many of us with good teaching will confess salvation by grace, but we still, day in, day out, determine our own worth by our performance and our busyness. And it's a lie. That can never, never, never lead to rest. It is a key dichotomy in the scriptures themselves. You can work or you can rest. <laughs> And it isn't that works bad. But he's saying, stop. It's grace. Do you think Paul learned that personally? <laughs> Very deeply and profoundly? Do you think he was a worker? Yes. Stop. Rest. Sabbath. Not legalistically. That's Old Testament law a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And when you get that down better, 
Then you go from red, stop, to green, go. And you walk, and Paul talks about walking seven different times, five positives, two negatives. We'll be working through all those. Two of them are do not. Do not walk in the way of the world. And don't walk in the futility of a darkened mind. Make sure you're keeping your head clear, okay? But then there's all those walks. And we'll be going through them. You're trying to scribble them all down. I'll send them to you. <laughs> I see Wayne. That's encouraging, Wayne. I saw you look at the screen and he's writing. I'm like, I love you, Wayne. <laughs> but I'll send it. That's a lot to write down. And we'll, we're going to work through it. This is the book of Ephesians. It's just a big picture. Sit. Stop. Rest. And when you are in a place of rest, then walk. Oh, and then don't walk certain ways. But go. Okay? Now you go. Walk. And as you're walking, every once in a while you might feel like, I'm kind of losing my heart. Kind of losing my spirit. And when you do, don't be like, it's because of that boss. Or that stinking Nero on the throne. Some of you are laughing. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> but this is what we do. And, it, and Paul's like, don't do that. Your struggle, and you're losing your spirit and your heart, not because of flesh and blood. That's what you're telling yourself. It's not that. There's evil spirits, and the Ephesians knew this, okay, who are trying to take your heart. So when you feel that, whoa, caution, yellow light. Maybe you need to go, maybe you need to stop. But whoa, that should get your attention and orient yourself the right way. So you know whether to go, whether to stop. And you stand. You make the right decision. You stand your ground. And you win that fight for your own spirit. And you can. And that's the battle. Remember what I said last week about how despair deaths have actually gotten to a point where they've shortened the American lifespan for the first time since World War I. People are losing their spirit. And they're not even figuring out why. Because the devil's real, that's why. And you gotta win that fight first. The turning point as you're walking is how you keep your own spirit filled. But you start with God's choice to enter history to redeem, make that choice. We'll begin building on that next week. That's Ephesians 1. Longest sentence in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. One sentence in the Greek. In the grammar of being, the heart behind Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the greatest story ever told. God's heart to enter human history. In the grammar of human language, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 might be the greatest sentence ever written. Getting to verses 13 to 14 is when God's invasion of history in his heart runs into the Ephesians. And Paul says, and you, you Ephesians, and you. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed, God did something. He sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. We didn't even know there was a spirit. 
He sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it, until you get to heaven, to the praise of his glory. That is the, that's when God's invasion of history met the Ephesians, and through them, you. And that's at the tail end of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. But we'll look at the greatest sentence ever written next time as we start Ephesians. Stand against the principalities and powers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Help us to really fully join in with the greatest story ever written, the story of your heart shown to us in Christ. Help us to sit and stop and then walk well and when needed, stand and win the fight for our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.